As we come to God's word this morning, it's good for us to go to him in prayer and ask for his help in our time. Almighty God, we come to you and we proclaim that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, high and majestic, but that you have come down to us. God with us. Lord, as we come to Advent this season, we are mindful of this truth and this reality, but we pray that you would help us now, that you would open our hearts and our minds to the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might know how we can better love and serve you in obedience and faithfulness unto Christ. We pray all of this in his strong name. Amen. As you find your passage of Scripture, I'll invite you to turn with me to John, the first chapter. We'll read the first 13 verses together. You can try to print it in your bulletin or in your ESV Bible, and as you're getting there, I'll relate to you. I think it's really hard to believe it's already December. As I was driving around town this past week, I thought, oh, they're putting up the garland awfully early, and there's already a Christmas tree, and then it dawned on me. It's Thanksgiving. It's time for them to do that. And we even have our own ice skating right back in town. I think Friday would be a great day. You could go ice skating outdoors with 70 degree weather. Unbelievable. But you know, I think that's representative of our culture that we bounce so abruptly between holidays. And I've just shed the, the Thanksgiving, even though I haven't shed the pounds yet. And we have to get into Christmas. It's already here. We've begun Advent. I think it's part of the hecticness in our culture even. We have never-ending holiday parties. You know, we have the rivalry sports weekend. Go Tigers. We have Black Friday. I'm just kidding. We have Black Friday deals. And now we even have Black Friday deals week. I don't know how to interpret that. I don't know what that is. It's hard to keep in mind the context of Advent. What is Christmas? Why do we celebrate the coming of Christ? What is John talking about in the first chapter of the gospel that he wrote? Well, I would submit to you there are two things we need to remember as we come to our text this morning, as we come to the Word of God, as we begin Advent this morning, as we celebrate Christmas this year. First, it's all about Jesus. It always has been and it always will be despite what the culture around us believes. That's why John begins talking about Christ who was before all things, who created all things. Even there is not anything made that was made without Him. And second, we can't underestimate the fact that Jesus is God. Now, I know you're all good church-going people and you're thinking, Phil, that's... That's Christianity 101. Jesus is God. I know that. That's what our shorter catechism tells us. Us three persons, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. The Father is the same as the Son. They're both God. But what does that really mean? What does it mean that Jesus is not just a mere human being? That Jesus is God in the flesh? Well, it means that by his being God, he has command over us. He directs and moves our observance of Advent and not the other way around. He has ultimate sway over our holiday traditions, whether we like it or not. And I would submit to you, frankly, if we find that those traditions don't reflect Christ, they're not Christmas traditions. They're just made-up holiday traditions. You can see that very clearly in our culture today. 
What's the big faux pas going around town during this season? Oh, no, 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 it's not Merry Christmas. It's Happy Holidays. It's this polite, politically correct mumbo-jumbo. Remember those as we come to our text this morning. Let's read God's Word together. John chapter 1, we'll read the first 13 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Last year, during the same first week in Advent, I preached a similar sermon on John chapter 1, and I, I related to you one of my deep dark secrets, pun intended. I was very afraid of the dark as a young child. I was so afraid, in fact, at least for a time, that I couldn't be alone by myself, and I had to have a light on at all times. And I think that reality was because I felt alone in the dark. I felt helpless, stranded, as it were. I couldn't see what was real and what was make-believe. I was helpless or hopeless as a young child. And this reminded me of a story that I've heard this year about an experienced hiker. His name was Robert uh, Gorski, I think that's how you pronounce it anyway. But he's a man from Indiana, and he's an experienced hiker who'd gone out on about a week-long journey. And he finds himself about three days into the hike, lost. He realized that he was not on the right bearing, not on the right heading, and he had no way to get home and no idea how to get there. Now, he was an experienced hiker, as I said. He had all the necessary survival tools, but in his testimony, after being rescued, he would tell you it wasn't the need of food. It wasn't food that was going to save him. It wasn't water that was going to save him. Those are necessary for survival. Jesus would tell a woman at the well, you drink this water, but indeed you still have thirst. Drink of me, and you will never thirst again. This, this man knew that the food would run out. If he were to remain lost long enough, the water could not quench his thirst. He would perish. So what do you think rescued him? What came to his aid in his time of need? Well, I bet if I polled the ladies in the congregation, most of you could probably pull this great survival tool right out of your purse. And if I'm skilled this morning, 
I might just be able to make some light reflect right in Bob's eyes. He had a mirror. Sorry, Bob. He had a signal mirror. What's a signal mirror, you might ask? You're not a survivalist, you're not an outdoorsman or a hiker. It's simply a mirror, no matter how small it is, it is able to direct a ray of light, sometimes for miles on end. This gentleman was able to signal a helicopter miles away, thousands of feet in the air, that happened to be searching for him. He was able to flag it down just for a tiny beam of sunlight. You see, he didn't use the mirror, as we often do, to reflect on ourselves, to study our complexion, make sure we look all gussied up for the holidays. He used it by focusing it on something else, a source outside of himself, for help, because he knew that he was lost. Actually, he would have been dead had it not been for someone else to intervene in his situation, someone else to come and to save him. So he's able to take a small little piece of glass and reflect light to someone that can help him. And although I've never been stranded in the wilderness as this man was, I, I, that resonated with me, that sense of helplessness and hopelessness. I, I remember being a young child and being deathly afraid of the dark, not knowing what would happen to me. I needed the light. This gentleman, Robert, needed light in order to survive, and I would argue that you need light this morning. And so let's go to our text. The first thing that John introduces us to is not actually light, it's the Word that is God. And I would say, first off, notice here that Jesus is not described as the Word of God. It's an important distinction, although it may seem like semantics. That's how we refer to our Bibles. It is the Word of God. In reality, at the end of the day, this is just paper and ink. Now, we believe that it contains the Word of God, the self-revelation of God Almighty. That means that it's authoritative for our life. It's the only good and true rule of faith and practice. It's our survival kit. But John is saying that this is the Word that is God. It's not the word inscripturated. It's not the word written down. It's the word lived out. It's the word in the flesh. It is Christ. It is very God from very God. And this is different. Jesus is God. And we know this because he says he created all things. He was there in the beginning. Before all things were, the word was. And we know that because we see in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, how does God create everything? He speaks everything into existence. It is Christ. It is the life-giving power that is the Word. God created all things. Jesus is God, the one by whom there was nothing made without Him. There was nothing in all the world that was made without Christ. In fact, He is life, the Word Christ gives us life. It's the light of men. So you and I need to face two realities this morning. First, we are not the light. We are not the light. And second, we'll see in a moment, we need the one who is the light. Now, if you think back with me to this gentleman's testimony, this hiker, after being lost in the wilderness, he would tell you he would have been dead if he hadn't admitted that he was lost. 
If he didn't come to the realization that he didn't know the way out of the woods, he would be dead. He couldn't find enough food, he couldn't find enough water because he didn't know how to get back to civilization. He didn't know how to make it on his own. He would have died. He reckoned that someone else was needed to save him. And so he pulled out his trusty signal mirror and began to seek help. And the question for you and I this morning, then, is do you recognize that you're lost? You're not the light. Jesus is the light that was coming into the world, John will tell us in a moment. And so we must ask ourselves a question. Do you realize that you're lost without Jesus? You have a great and dire need for someone else to save you. You can't navigate the forest of this life and make it out alive. You and I are ill-equipped. We're unable to do so. Do you know, for instance, uh, being cheeky on purpose, do you know, for instance, that you're not going to make it out of this life alive? You might ask me, well, this is Christmas. We've got poinsettias and a Christmas tree. Why are we talking about death? Why are we contemplating our mortality? We sing wonderful carols. It's all spice cider and, and pumpkin pie and roasted ham. It's all these wonderful things. Why are we talking about death? Well, beloved, I would submit to you, it's because Christ came to this earth to die. You see, from the beginning of his time here on earth, he had the cross before his eyes. He had to come to die for you and for me. And that begs the question of us then, do we realize the severity of the incarnation? The fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are lost in the wilderness of this dark age without the light of Christ. At Advent, we tend to look past this real reason why Jesus came. You know, we focus on the bows and the wonderful music and the garland, and I focus primarily on the food that comes. Uh, we've had one round. We're getting ready for the next. But sometimes we forget that Christ came for the express purpose of dying for our sins. Because we don't like to think about death. We're evasive people. We like to live the moment. We don't like to believe that all of us are one day closer to the grave. But Christ is the light of the world. We are not the light. And furthermore, the text tells us that this light is trustworthy. It's dependable. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Light always wins. Go into a dark place and light the smallest of lights, and it will overcome all darkness. We read the prophecy candle this morning, and I wonder if we stop to think about that prophecy we find in Isaiah. We tend to focus on the beautiful picture of, to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, all of the wonderful titles, but we gloss over the fact that it's the people who walked in darkness even who dwelt in a land of deep darkness that needed that child to be born. You and I are in a dark age. 
We've not left the dark ages, as it were. Sin abounds, not simply in the world, but in the lawlessness of our own hearts. But on them, as light shine. But you know, the context of these verses in Isaiah are very interesting. It's one of joy. It's one of promised uh, overcoming of the Messiah, the promised victory in Christ. But there's also judgment to the people of God. The Lord, this is verse 8, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. For all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. Or if we go over into chapter 10, we see the Lord pronouncing judgment on Assyria, that lawless nation. He says, ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury against a godless nation. I send him. You know, it's interesting. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about the people of God. They are the godless nation whom he sends Assyria against. But Assyria, often like us, in the arrogance of our hearts, says, By the strength of my hand I have done it. By my wisdom I have understanding. I remove boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures, etc., etc. And the Lord responds with the word of judgment. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. God is pronouncing to the people judgment because of the darkness. We have to reckon with the fact first that we are not the light. We are a people lost in our darkness. We are in the wilderness, stranded and helpless without this Christ, this Messiah who is to come. But Jesus is the true light, as John says. We'll skip down a couple of verses to verse 9 through 13. We must recognize that we are not the light, but we also must come to understand that we do need Him who is the light. Jesus, the true light, was in the world, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own people, and His own people did not receive Him. The question for us this morning, then, as we come to our text in John, do you know that you need Christ? And I think we need to pause and be very careful here. The question is not, did you know that you needed Christ at one point a long time ago? Well, now that we've received the Lord, we've accepted Jesus into our heart, we can go on merrily on our way. As if to say we don't need Christ now. Each and every second that we live in all things that we do, in every part of our person, we are dependent on Him who is the light. That would be a mistake. Often we treat salvation a bit like we treat Advent. What do we do every year? We go to the attic or we go to the garage and we pull out all the boxes and we undo all the ornaments and decorations and set up a beautiful spectacle in our houses about 
how Christ is the reason for the season, you know, it's culturally appropriate at this time, but do we live that way day in and day out the other 11 months of the year? I confess to you, I often do not. We treat salvation like something simply to put on at a particular time of year. Our faith is like one of the little lights in the windowsill, reminding our neighbors that we've spent a good bit of money on lights to put in windowsills. Instead of recognizing that we are not the light, we need to reflect the light at all times because we're dependent on Him. We didn't need Christ at one point a long time ago. We need Christ. We need Him who is the Word because He is our very life. He's the light of men. We must know Him, first of all. It says that He came into the world and the world did not know Him. First of all, John is teaching us that we need to know as much as we can about the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to know Him. I would say then, not frankly to you and to me, there's no excuse for a Christian who does not read their Bible. That's like saying you're an American and you don't know what the Constitution is or why it's important. A lot of us don't know what the Constitution is or why it's important, or at least some parts of our society don't. But Christians should know the Word. We're people of the Word. We should read our Bibles to understand who Christ is on each and every page of the Old and New Testament. But John presses a little further. He says we must receive Him. He went to His own people. His own people did not receive Him. We can't just know Him with our heads. We must know and receive Him with our hearts. I'll give you a practical example from this one. This is a confession from my own life. I know what John 14, 6 says. I know that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. Christianity is a very exclusive religion. Anyone can come to Christ and call upon Him as Lord and Savior. But we come to the Father only through Him. Now, the example is, my brother is an unbeliever. I know with my head that his only way of salvation is in Christ. But do I convey that truth to him when I see him over the holiday season? Do I have a sense of urgency that if I were not to see my brother again for all that I know, he would be dead without Christ, he would be bound for hell, and I would never see him again? Is that impressed upon me with such severity that I weep and that I moan and I cry for my brother's salvation? All too often, I do not. We can't just know Christ. We must receive Him for who He is. We must recognize that He is the light and the only true light which is in the world. As if that weren't enough, John presses further still. We must know Him. We must receive Him as the true light, recognizing our need. We must also believe in His name. We must believe in who Jesus says that He is. Now, up to this point, you're probably thinking, whew, slow down a little bit. This sounds a bit like a soapbox. Well, I promise to you, this is not a soapbox. Everyone pay attention at this point. This is the good news of the gospel. The difference, I'll tell you, between 
a soapbox and a sermon is that a soapbox never ends in good news. You walk away scratching your head thinking, man, that person's so angry. What, what, what got under their bonnet? What bee is ruffling their feathers? I like to mix metaphors, by the way. But the point is, the sermon ends in good news. Beloved, Christ, if we believe in His name, is able to overcome the darkness. He's able to save us in the wilderness. No matter how small our signal may be to call out for His help, He is the true light which cannot be overcome by darkness. He is the one who searches and knows the depths of our souls, the depths of our sin. He sees our brokenness. He sees that we are a wayward people. He sees that we are callous and unloving towards our siblings. He sees that we do not love the world as He does. And yet He's still pleased to come and to eat with you at Christmas. He's still pleased to come and to die on the cross for your sin. You're free of charge. There's nothing that we do that can earn Christ's righteousness. That's why it says, we're not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus gives us the right to become children of God. We do not take it. We receive it as He freely offers His love in the Gospel. Now on to the practical stuff. What does that mean today? The question I pose in our sermon title is, how do you know that you're a child of God? How do you know that you have a right to be an heir of all things, a co-heir with Christ? Well, do you know that you're not the light? Do you recognize, like this hiker, that you're lost? That you have no hope in and of yourself? Or do you still scurry about the forest of your life, hunting for food that will not give you satisfaction? Searching for water that will only leave you more thirsty? Or have you pulled out the signal mirror and asked for help? Have you cried out unto God Almighty, I am broken, I am lost, I am hopeless, I am helpless, I'm like a scared little child in the dark. Please come and save me. You understand your dependence on Him who is the light, your need of Christ. Well, as we all look heavenward this morning, as we look forward, ultimately, you know, this is not about Jesus is coming 2,000 years ago. We come on Sunday mornings to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We come looking forward to His second coming. That's what Christmas is really about. It's not about coming around the tree with presents. It's not about looking at Jesus' death and thinking of how horrible we are. It's ultimately about looking forward to that day when He will come again and make all things new. So as we look heavenward, Here's a few just practical questions you can ask yourself. Some good barometers to know if you recognize that you're not the light and that you're dependent upon Christ who is the light. First, do you read and trust God's Word regularly? Do you read the Bible? Because in it, we find life. I said at the beginning, this is our survival kit. 
This is how we find sustenance to go on, even in the wilderness of our life, even in the pain and trials that are unspeakable, that are evil, that press upon us and cause us despair. This is your peace and your comfort. Do you read God's Word regularly? Do you recognize your need of Christ? And second, do you bear witness to the light? You notice... I left out the little middle part of the passage. I did that intentionally. I think John places that in there, uh, a reference to John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. He says that there was a man sent from God, and his name was John. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Brothers and sisters, let me be very clear. This doesn't mean... That you need all of the answers to all of the questions that the world throws at Christians. This doesn't mean that you need to have some fancy apologetic endeavor where you go out and you, you win atheists and unbelievers to the Lord Christ. What this means is that you bear witness to the fact that you know Him who is the light. That He is the one who has saved you. That you rest secure in the brightness of His glory. That's what we sang as we began worship. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Do you believe that? Are you bearing witness to that reality, that Christ is the life, that He is coming again, and that in Him and in Him alone is the power to save. We look call on His name. We know Him, receive Him, and believe that He will do what He says He will do.